You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. No, I have no intention of uh, responding each day to uh, events in other jurisdictions. B.C. Premier John Horgan ruling out for now retaliation against Alberta in the battle over the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Chris and Sophie are off tonight. Anticipation was high heading into this afternoon's news conference. How would John Horgan react to Alberta Premier Rachel Notley's decision to ban B.C. wines? Horgan says he's standing firm with his government's right to consult with British Columbians about increased bitumen shipments through the province, but he's not retaliating. Keith Baldry reports. For a leader of a government to goad another jurisdiction to take action against a third jurisdiction uh, strikes me as uh, provocative. It is not acceptable for the government of B.C. to threaten actions which are illegal and unconstitutional. And so the war of words between Canada's two NDP premiers continued today as B.C. Premier John Horgan responded on camera for the first time since Alberta Premier Rachel Notley ignited a trade war, banning the importation of B.C. wine into her province in retaliation for B.C.'s vow to block the Kinder Morgan pipeline. I would suggest uh, issuing a press release talking about our intention to consult with British Columbians is not provocative, it's not starting anything. And uh, the Premier of Alberta has taken a, a course, uh, but I'm not going to be distracted by that. So I'm going to focus on the things that matter to British Columbians. As for Notley, she says Alberta is fighting on behalf of all Canadians. As much as Alberta seems to be leading the fight to stand up for the benefit of the national economy and, and, and jobs throughout this country, in fact, what this really is, is a national problem. It's Canada's problem. And she says killing the Kinder Morgan pipeline would have dire economic consequences that go beyond B.C.'s wine industry. If uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline doesn't go through, uh, there's going to be a lot fewer people able to buy wine, B.C. or otherwise, or go to restaurants uh, in Alberta or otherwise. The two premiers actually talked last week, and Horgan says he was critical of her position then. I told her that I, I felt that her reaction uh, on the conversation was over the top. Watching over these two squabbling premiers is the Prime Minister, whose government has final jurisdiction over the pipeline. We stand up for the federal government's role and responsibility, which includes responsibility over the, uh, over the provinces. Uh, we're continuing to discuss and engage with the B.C. government, with uh, the Alberta government. In any event, B.C.'s Premier says he won't make the next move. With respect to escalation, that again is entirely in the hands of uh, Premier Notley, not me. Keith Baldry, Global News. The Alberta Premier has taken this battle to social media. Rachel Notley tweeting messages throughout the day that she says are from British Columbians who support her stand against the B.C. government. Meantime, B.C. Green leader Andrew Weaver showing his support for B.C. stance, tweeting a picture of himself buying three bottles of B.C. VQA wine, calling it his response to Rachel Notley's, quote, pettiness. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry now from Victoria. Keith, a lot of drama so far this week. Where does it go from here? Yeah, I think the drama's over for now, uh, guys. Uh, look for the rhetoric to start subsiding. Uh, John Horgan made it very clear today he's not going to go into for any tit-for-tat politics here. No retaliation. Uh, he really doesn't. He really seemed uncomfortable talking to us. He really want, seemed to be wanting to be somewhere else. And Rachel Notley, I think, tempted it down, tempered it down a bit today as well. Uh, but uh, it's going to be interesting how Ottawa gets involved in this tomorrow. BC, senior BC officials will be meeting with senior federal officials to discuss this and other 
issues. And I suspect Ottawa will also try to uh, lower the, the temperature and the rhetoric as well. But I don't see Rachel Notley backing off her ban, and I don't see John Horgan backing away from his uh, desire to control how much bitumen flows through pipelines in B.C. Ultimately, we're probably going to end up in court, but uh, a lot of stuff's going to have to happen before we get to that point. Back All right. Stay tuned. Thank you very much, Keith. Now, ironically, one of the Okanagan's vineyards facing the biggest hit from this is the official winery of a major Alberta sports team. We're currently with Time Winery, the official winery of the Calgary Flames, so um, it definitely affects us. Penticton's Time Winery signed a deal with the Flames late last year to produce Go Time red and white wines from a dollar from the sale of each bottle going to the Calgary Flames Foundation. The operators say Alberta's ban could be a huge blow to their relatively small operation depending on how long the dispute drags on. We currently, as a small business, are selling about a third of all of our production. We have two wineries into Alberta, so it really does affect us. You know, we're hoping that this uh, gets resolved immediately, hopefully. Uh, And currently we're sitting with some great inventory in Alberta, so we're really not too worried about that yet. Time Wine says it has enough inventory in Alberta to supply the Saddle Dome for about a month or so. It looks like Airbnb wants to go from being part of the problem in B.C.'s affordable housing crisis to being part of the solution. The short-term rental website signing a first-of-its-kind in-Canada agreement to collect taxes on rentals. Jill Bennett tells us what the NDP government plans to do with the money. At Airbnb, you can find holiday... It's a popular home-sharing site. In B.C. alone, Airbnb says it has 18,000 hosts. We think we should pay our fair share so that all British Columbians can benefit from, you know, the value of, uh, of home sharing. Airbnb and the B.C. government have reached a deal. This is my bedroom. Airbnb will soon tax. collect sales tax as well as a municipal and regional district tax from rentals. The sharing economy is here. We need to make sure as governments that we look at our tax systems, that we look at our arrangements that we have in place, and we make sure we create that level playing field. Once legislative and regulatory changes are made, it's expected the 8% sales tax on Airbnb will bring in about $16 million a year to be used on housing initiatives. Well, I have to tell you, as finance minister, every penny makes a difference. Uh, Every penny makes a difference. It's critical to make sure that we're putting money in. It's unclear exactly how much of an impact short-term rentals have on long-term rental stock in B.C. Even though there is no shortage of full home rentals on the website, Airbnb claims the average B.C. host rents a room 54 nights a year, making about $8,000. As for residents, there is an agreement. Something needs to be done about affordability. It's unreasonable to live in the city right now. I moved out to Sawasan because it made no sense to stay here anymore. So I think that's a step in the right direction, but I think it's such a crisis here that they need to do more. Uh, I don't really see how that's going to help the housing. As for how the new tax revenue will be applied to tackle housing affordability, the finance minister says those details will be revealed in the upcoming budget. Jill Bennett, Global News. The inquest into the police shooting of a mentally ill man in Vancouver in 2014 heard from more witnesses to the tragic events. Grace Key is in Burnaby tonight, and Grace, one witness has made a disturbing claim about police actions that night. Well, there was one witness who was out of town, so he provided his testimony over the phone. So according to this witness, there was at least one shot that was fired after uh, Tony Dew fell to the ground. Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. What was that? 
Yeah, that's what I thought. You can hear several beanbag rounds being fired at Tony Dew before another officer fired his pistol, killing the 51-year-old man. The video was submitted as evidence at a coroner's inquest. Yeah, he's got a big stick. Two by four. The shooting happened back in November of 2014. Vancouver police were called to the corner of Knight and 41st for a distraught man carrying a two by four and screaming. One witness provided key evidence describing how an officer shot Dew in the hand after he fell to the ground as he was reaching for the two by four. The witness stood by his testimony when the lawyer for the Vancouver Police Department questioned his memory. When somebody is on the ground, they're no longer a threat and there's no need to keep shooting. Another witness says the initial shot seemed to have little effect on Dew as he took a couple of steps forward. One officer started to move back. She heard louder shots and Dew fell to the ground. As officers and Dew first approached one another, one witness said Dew's hand was fully extended and he was pointing the stick at officers. Another is saying Dew walked at a steady pace and he held the two by four with two hands straight out. After the rounds of beanbags, Dew was shot twice in the chest and once in the hand. The Pivot Legal Society is working with Dew's family and says police are acting too quickly on scenes. They are being uh, dealt with very speedily by the police without having uh, planning, without having uh, adequate resources on scene, not waiting for uh, backup officers to come. So the two officers involved in this incident were never charged with any wrongdoing. The inquest wraps up uh, on, fe- on Friday. It doesn't find fault, but it will make recommendations. And Okay, thanks for that report, Grace. Grace Key reporting in Burnaby tonight. More Kamloops parents are coming forward tonight alleging their school and school district didn't do enough when their child was assaulted by classmates. Global's Jeff Hastings is in Kamloops tonight. And Jeff, our story earlier this week has generated a lot of attention. A great deal of attention, and it's exposed some potential shortcomings in the rules that are in place to protect students. Some parents are demanding change, and it may be on the way. She was in tears. Uh, She said that she was tired of the harassment that she had been receiving, that we didn't know it had been going on for months. Her daughter says a classmate assaulted her in a Kamloops school three weeks ago. She had been sexually harassed, including unwanted touching. She says the boy was spoken to by school officials and by RCMP. The family has decided not to pursue charges, but they're unhappy with the school's investigation and policy. When we asked um, about a sexual harassment policy, I was laughed at and I was told that there was no specific sexual harassment policy because it wasn't needed. They feel their experience in the aftermath of the alleged assault is alarmingly similar to what another family is going through. A girl said to have been lured and assaulted by four boys January 30th. And then a response from school officials the girl's mother feels falls well short of what the victim needed or what justice demanded. I really think this is indicative of why our society has an epidemic of violence and sexual violence against girls and women because nobody is willing to be accountable. The parents are pushing for an updated sexual harassment policy, improvements to how cases are investigated and how victims are treated. We don't have specific um, policies in place for sexual harassment. It, it, it's very dismissive. It, it, 
it almost says that this doesn't exist. Very frustrating when you can't speak directly to the incident. Um, but again, all I can do is reassure the public that we do have children's best interest at heart at all times. District officials cannot discuss the alleged assaults, but they will talk about district policy and its potential evolution. Maybe it is time to take a closer look at our policy. Recognition that just because the district's policies meet the requirements of legislation doesn't mean they're sufficient. I want to see our schools safe for everyone. And the vast majority of students would say yes, they are. Um, but we need every student to feel that way. So let's take action. Let's move forward. Now, school district staff can only make policy change recommendations to the elected school board. Change will be a political decision. But we hear that the board chair is open to listening. Back to you. But first, fire has damaged an egg processing plant in Abbotsford. Crews were called to Golden Valley Food shortly before 2 this morning. The flames were first spotted near a cardboard compactor in the warehouse where pallets of egg cartons are stored. No word on how the fire started. No one was injured. The plant employs about 175 people. We've heard plenty of talk recently about Metro Vancouver transit projects such as the Broadway Extension and Surrey Light Rail, but you can add another one to the list, Light Rail to the Fraser Valley. Yes, the proposal is to put the line down the middle of Highway 1. Our John was in Abbotsford tonight with a new look at a plan that's been on the books for decades. John. Well, with projects like Vancouver's Broadway Corridor or Surrey's Light Rail, these are major cities that are looking for better transit options. But according to the mayor of Abbotsford, he says his city only has one option. And as you can see behind me, it's not working. The ride out of Abbotsford called the Fraser Valley Express. But some transit users say it doesn't quite live up to the title. Getting out of Abbotsford, it can be frustrating um, taking the 66. Traffic's horrible. It sometimes takes about, I don't know, an hour, two hours. <sighs> so damn long. The alternative isn't much better with rush hour traffic along Highway 1 in and out of Abbotsford, keeping people in their cars for hours. There is no other way for us to get, for the residents of Abbotsford who work in Vancouver, or in many cases downtown Vancouver, to get to work other than to hop in a car and drive. All those in favor of the motion, opposed, carries unanimously. Metro Vancouver has gotten plenty of attention, prioritizing projects like the Patello Bridge, Broadway Corridor, and Surrey Light Rail. The Fraser Valley says it cannot be forgotten. They have bus and rail, and we, we have neither. Uh, and the bus that we have is on, stuck on a two-lane freeway most days when there's an accident, which is just about every day. So Mayor Braun is raising the idea of a light rail line down the center median of the Trans-Canada Highway between Surrey and Abbotsford. If you're able to connect all the areas on a more broader scale, I think that would be you know, sufficient for everyone. With high housing costs pushing more people further out to the Fraser Valley, many say it's time to invest in first widening the highway, then better transit. Yeah, the Fraser Valley gets really forgotten. Abbotsford's mayor also worried without better transit, if mobility pricing comes in, Fraser Valley residents will be left picking up the tab. They have to. They don't have an option. They're going to pay that mobility pricing, whatever that it looks like. That's why Abbotsford is hoping for a Fraser Valley Express on rails in the near future. Mayor Braun also has a different perspective when it comes to the funding model. Right now, Metro Vancouver cities are expected to pay their share for the transit projects. He says Abbotsford can't afford it. 
and that should be left up to the provincial and federal governments. Jay and. All right. Thank you, John. John Wall reporting for us tonight. A Victoria area woman says she's living in fear from a construction company. The wall next to her daughter's bedroom was hit by a giant boulder. And as Kylie Stanton tells us, this isn't the first time something like this has happened. So this is where it impacted. Crushing siding and splitting the frame. You can see all the debris here. It's path of destruction starting up on this hill and ending just short of something tragic. Mere inches from her eight-year-old daughter's bed. I'm so upset I can't even begin to imagine. It was around 9.30 Monday morning when this boulder came crashing down from a neighboring construction site, slamming into the home, shaking the foundation. Like I couldn't even get it open and now you can see it's very stiff to open and it won't close. The door is a pain, but her daughter's room is a painful reminder. Yeah, it's awful. It makes me emotional every time I, um, I think about it and I'm just thankful that she wasn't in here. While her landlords have been helpful, there's been little to no discussion with the construction company. Our calls were not returned. McDonald has since reported the incident to WorkSafe BC. But it's not the first time something like this has happened. Freight train dropping on top of on top of us, that, that'd be the closest I could think of. In 2010, several boulders came crashing into this home, narrowly missing a seven-year-old boy sleeping in his room. And in 2015, boulders from a blasting project started raining down on this neighborhood, smashing through the roofs of these homes, and in one case, landing on a bed. It had such impact, it actually broke the bed frame. With this project being far from over. Are you worried it's going to happen again? Absolutely, I am. McDonald is now calling for a review of the safety regulations here, hoping this time someone will listen. It's not okay. Like, they need to do something before someone does get hurt. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Langford. We're getting a clearer look today at the amount and types of pollution along our coast. It's a million-dollar project that's accessible to all of us. As Linda Aylesworth reports, at least one of the problem spots may surprise you. Every ocean in the world is contaminated to some degree with toxic human-created chemicals. That includes the waters off the B.C. coast. But what and where are they? Without a, a, a fairly simple, methodical monitoring program, we're really um, almost searching the dark for which chemical concerns might exist. And so, from the Vancouver Aquarium, OceanWise has unveiled PollutionTracker.org, a $1.2 million project three years in the making. Pollution Tracker, a website accessible to all that provides users with high-quality data from sediments and from mussels from over 50 sites along the coast of British Columbia. All the sites are included on a map. Click on any one of them and you can see how much and what kinds of contaminants were detected. We can see that PCB levels are elevated in industrialized and port areas, Prince Rupert Harbour, areas of Burrard Inlet and Victoria Harbour. Victoria Harbour, once a major industrial waterfront hub, had the highest levels of contaminants. Including PCBs, including the flame retardant PBDEs, including dioxins and furans, including uh, legacy pesticides that have long, uh, long been banned. To get the data, they collected and tested sediment from the ocean floor, as well as mussels, which filter up to 100 litres of water a day. They're wonderful little scientists. I mean, they're out there doing the sampling for me. One of the major funders of the project, the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority. The Pollution Tracker project builds out our knowledge of how human and industrial activity has affected the environment to date. And ultimately, that information we need 
to do the right kind of research to support the right kind of guidelines in terms of policies, practices, procedures, and regulations. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Well, here's another example of the breathtaking beauty along the B.C. coast. This video of a group of porpoises was shot by global viewer Allie Walker in Seashell Inlet on the Sunshine Coast yesterday. They calmly approached, as you can see, the boat and swam under it and kept pace with the boat for some distance. And if that wasn't enough, today a pot of orcas was spotted breaching the calm waters a short distance away in Skookumchuck Narrows heading towards Seashell Inlet. Spectacular I was footage. Say that, amazing. Take a look at this now. This security cam footage captures the moment a deadly 6.4 earthquake struck Taiwan's eastern coast late last night. And this is a shocking aftermath. A 12-story building that can be seen tilting precariously. At least seven people have been killed across Taiwan. Crews have been scrambling to reach dozens of others who remain missing. Close to 200 people have been rescued from damaged buildings. The region has been hit with several aftershocks complicating rescue efforts. And more dramatic video to show you. This from Bolivia, where a flash flood sent a torrent of mud and debris through a town. Homes and cars were seen floating in the streets. Two children were killed and one person is missing. A state of emergency has been declared in the hardest-hit regions. At least 50,000 families have been left homeless by the heavy rains. Plenty of buzz in the U.S. Capitol today over news President Donald Trump has requested a military parade through the streets of Washington. Yeah, it's certainly not unprecedented, but some are questioning tonight why now and is it worth spending tens of millions of dollars? It's been 27 years since tanks and troops paraded past Pennsylvania Avenue. Now, the Pentagon's preliminarily planning another procession. Why divert time, energy, financial resources to the planning of a parade, as the president has asked? Uh, the president's uh, respect, his, uh, his fondness for the military, I think, is reflected in him asking for these options. The commander-in-chief clearly delighted by the Bastille Day parade in Paris last summer. And it was one of the greatest parades I've ever seen. But outside the White House, a mixed reaction, with some suggesting it's reminiscent of the former Soviet Union or North Korea. Anytime you are staging a massive military event, you can come across as over-militarized and over-authoritarianist. Washington's last military parade in 1991 to commemorate U.S. victory in the Gulf came right past the White House here. But this time around, it's still too early to talk about a route or a date, maybe Veterans Day, or a price tag. The 91 parade cost about $12 million then, about $21 million in today's dollars. I say that it's a fantastic waste of money to amuse the president. I'm not sure that honoring our military is a waste of money. At this VFW hall outside Charlotte, retired Sergeant Steve Colson agrees. I was in the military for 20 years, and I stood some of those parades, and it's, it's tiring and... and uh, uh, but I think it would be a great thing. A show of military might maybe on the way. Hallie Jackson, NBC News, Washington. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is promising to leave the jokes to the professionals after his offhanded remark at a town hall Friday went international. The future of mankind. So we'd like you to... Uh, we, we like to say people kind, not necessarily mankind, because uh, yeah. it's more inclusive. There we go. I uh, made a dumb joke a few days ago uh, that uh, seems to have gone a little viral. 
certainly did. Trudeau's comment was picked up by U.S. and British media and generated some backlash. He admits his attempt at humor backfired, and he says next time he'll think twice before trying to be funny. A new consumer alert tonight about smart TVs. They could be susceptible to hackers potentially spying on you. Millions of people have smart TVs. Some tips now on how you can protect your family. Millions of smart TVs connected to the Internet. Streaming apps like Netflix could be smarter than you think. Anything with a connection is a target for a hacker. A new product test by Consumer Reports found a relatively unsophisticated hacker could take control of a smart TV from thousands of miles away and turn the volume up, change the channels, and force it to play videos to harass or frighten you. The vulnerabilities are found in smart TVs by Samsung, TCL, and others that are connected to the Roku TV platform. Many of those models also track your personal viewing habits thanks to terms of use that you agree to when setting it up. Is your smart TV really spying on you? Yes, most of the smart TVs, in fact, all the ones that we looked at are configured to send back to the manufacturer minute-by-minute uh, -minute reports to the things that you're watching. That information allows companies to target ads to your TV or even other devices based on what you've watched. Samsung responded in a statement saying, protecting consumer data is one of our top priorities. We make every effort to ensure that data is handled with the utmost care. Roku says it takes security very seriously. There is no security risk to our customers' accounts or to the Roku platform, as stated by Consumer Reports. To protect yourself, security experts recommend change your settings by opting out of data collection, always download software security updates, and use a password to protect your Wi-Fi network. Because you don't know who else might be watching. Jolene Kent, NBC News, New York. Embracing rather than cursing old age could help maintain a healthy brain. The Yale School of Public Health found older adults with positive beliefs about aging had lower rates of dementia, even in those with a higher genetic risk for the condition. In fact, positive-minded seniors who carried the Alzheimer's gene were about half as likely to develop dementia than those with negative attitudes about aging. Welcome back. He's only a baby and already he's become a groundbreaker. Coming up after Christie's weather, we'll explain why young Lucas and his million dollar smile are about to become world famous. He's just adorable. Mm -hmm. The new pitch baby for orange and banana medley and <laughs> pea and squash surprise, all those delicious flavors. Well, let's talk about this massive snowstorm, Christy. I, the amounts are incredible, 50 centimeters, and it's still continuing. That's exactly right. Still warnings in place. I'll show you how much more is expected in these areas. These were the hardest hit areas from Terrace, extending down into Prince George, Burns Lake, one of the hardest hit. I'll show you one of the photos there. And this is from earlier in the day. I got one actually just a couple minutes ago. I didn't have enough time to get it on air, but it's even worse there. I'm having reports of more than uh, two feet of snow in some of these areas. The internet is down. Also, uh, the roads. So we have 10 highways across the province that have travel advisories right now. Two of those, Highway 1 and Highway 16, have some areas that are closed because of avalanche hazard. Uh, it has been snowing since yesterday in a lot of these areas. Uh, overnight, it became very heavy and it continued all day. And as I mentioned, we still have those warnings still in effect. So uh, we're also having reports of some of these snow banks up to the roofs of houses. So incredible amounts of snow. These are the areas that have the warnings, all of the regions that have seen the snow already. So it continues to pummel these same areas. Another 25 centimeters possible by tomorrow morning in some of these regions. Here's a look at some of the numbers uh, from Terrace down towards Burns Lake. Could be Burns Lake that gets hit hardest overnight again. Down into Prince George and Quinell as well. And then over into the Columbia. 
Columbia region and then extending down into the Kootenai region as well. That's where we're going to see significant snowfall overnight. Now, a lot of these other areas will get hit, but it's milder there. So they're mainly looking at rain, and that includes some lower elevation regions. This Arctic front is going to slump to the south over the next 24 hours. It's going to allow this system to drop out of the region. So a much better travel day expected tomorrow as the system pushes out. But those of us here across the south coast, temperatures drop late tomorrow. And we have a very slim chance, slight chance, of an isolated flurry early Friday morning. Did I actually say that? Yes, I did. Here's a look at your forecast for tomorrow. So a clearing trend across these northern regions. Across the south, the bulk of the snow overnight. Tomorrow, mainly, you're looking at rainfall. There's a few key areas that stay cold enough, though. You'll still see that snowfall through the morning hours. But a drying trend, certainly, by the latter part of the day. South coast, still a chance of showers. We're hoping for some sunshine by the afternoon. So tomorrow, certainly, our transition day. And then late tomorrow, so Thursday night into our Friday morning, temperatures drop. And that's when we have a very slight chance of an isolated flurry. No accumulations. Generally, your Friday and Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud. But you'll feel the chill in the air, that's for sure. Gladys Foster celebrating 100 years. Margaret Thompson, congratulations to you as well. And Daisy and Bill Jensen celebrating 71 years together. And I'll leave you with another snow shot. A lot of schools were closed uh, today up in Quinnell. And thanks to Michelle for that one. Great shot. Thank you very much, Christy. Yeah, a little fun in the backyard with the dog. Mm-hmm. Well, for 90 years now, it's been one of the most famous baby pictures in the world, the one on the Gerber baby food jars. Well, this little guy, 18-month-old oh, Lucas Warren, has become the first infant with Down syndrome to be named a Gerber baby. His parents were thrilled that his photo was selected in the annual contest. They hope it sends a message that those with special needs should be accepted, not based on their looks, but who they are. Lucas's photo was chosen out of more than 140,000 submissions. Very cute, and congratulations, Lucas. All right, they've been lining them up and knocking them down for decades, and they're about to hit an impressive milestone. BC Bowls for Kids has been holding a bowl-a-thon for Variety, the children's charity, every year for the past 32 years. And they're about to reach the $3 million mark in money raised. And while some bowling alleys across the province have closed over the years, they still had 39 participating this year, and the money goes to a very good cause. Well, Variety provides so much for so many needed families across the province of British Columbia. We just thought that that was the best choice we could make. And a reminder, the 52nd Annual Show of Hearts Telethon takes place this Sunday right here on Global from 9.30 to 5.30. The eight-hour show will be live from the Hard Rock Casino in Coquitlam. And thank you in advance for all your donations. We're uh, hosting a couple of bands during sure the are. afternoon, so right. mm, you can break out your rock gear. <laughs> Always. Oh. Are you going to bring your leather? Uh, no, I've retired legs. my leather. I've retired it. Although we <laughs> used to do the overnight. We had like, some gear on, what right? You we you retired had... your leather. It's done. It's over I don't with. recall wearing any gear, but I do recall the overnight. <laughs> there, there were some, there were some uh, rock costumes, some sort of skulls I remember on one of the, sh- the shirts that uh, someone had on. That you may have worn. It was Jan Hour, I think, okay, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, there are times when the Canucks have been healthy that they've looked very good. That was October. Yeah. Yeah. Last night was definitely not one of them. That wasn't October. No. No. <laughs> it's a long no, way that off. Was a rather poor effort. Uh, it just wasn't just the Canucks that were hurting last night. Apparently, Sam Gagne sprained his ankle as well. He tried to practice today, but he realized he couldn't go. 
So they put him on a plane, sent him home to Vancouver. He'll meet with doctors and start the rehab process. He actually hasn't been playing all that great lately. Mind you, not many have with the Canucks. Hasn't scored in his last 13 games. And the last time he did score was on a five-on-three power play. Now, Gagne going back home means the Canucks had to bring someone up from Utica. And it's Darren Archibald who is coming up to join the Canucks for tomorrow's game in Tampa. Nearly made this team out of training camp, but was the last cut just before the regular season. He was basically beaten out of the final job by Jake Vertanen. He is someone Travis Green knows well from his days coaching in Utica. He's also someone, as you just saw, who doesn't mind hitting people, playing a bit tougher than most of the Canucks will. With the comments this year, just seven goals in 25 games, but he is pretty good defensively. Alex Burrows is like the NHL's version of Bruce Banner. For the most part, he's a nice man, but you won't like him when he's angry. And when Burrows gets angry on the ice, he's been known to do stupid things. The latest loss of control occurred last night against New Jersey when he jumped and then kneed Taylor Hall in the head twice. And because of that, Burroughs has been suspended by the NHL for 10 games. That'll cost him just over $134,000 in lost wages. Here's what started it, and here's what happened. Taylor Hall puts the big hit on Burroughs. Burroughs is not happy about this hit. Okay, we've seen that happen in the NHL. It's one thing he kind of jumps Hall, but it's right coming up there. And there, the knee to the head. This isn't the octagon. So Burroughs gets 10 games for that. Elaine Vigneault and the Rangers facing one of the hottest teams in the NHL, the Boston Bruins. They've been on a roll for a while. Although Rick Nash, who might get traded before the deadline or on deadline day, scores here for New York to make it 1-0. Then, 3-on-1 for the Bruins. Backus, no. Riley Nash, not related to Rick, hangs around. Played in the BCHL and Salmon Arm, raised in Kamloops, get the goal there, makes it 1-1. Then, well, you remember being on the ice. In 2011, the guy who raised the cup yes. raises his arms. That's right. Then Ochera, 2-1 now for the Bruins. And then Patrice Bergeron, if the NHL had sent teams or players to the Olympics, Bergeron would have been on the Canadian team. 5-1 Boston starting the third period. Well, last week we caught up with Travis Lule, his, who was still rehabbing the knee he tore up last season when he was playing some of the best football we've seen him play in years. Now, he is recovering pretty well. He would like to play again this year, and the Lions would love to have him play alongside Jonathan Jennings once again. In fact, according to Lions general manager Ed Hervey, they have been talking contract with Travis Lule as recently as this week. I mean, we had a, had a very uh, good meeting with Travis and his agent uh, on, uh, let's say, Monday, and uh, that re- went really well. Um, I think we're, you know, we're on pace to get something, you know, hopefully get something done. I mean, obviously, these things take a little time and trying to make certain that we're all on the same page uh, moving forward, but uh, barring any uh, issues, I can't see why we wouldn't have uh, Travis with our team. He adds to our team. We feel that we're a better team uh, you know, with him as a player as well as, uh, as uh, you know, in the locker room. All right, so the Whitecaps are in Hawaii. Yes, this is actually a Whitecaps game you're watching. Okay, it's not, <laughs> not the most professional video we've ever shown, but they're taking on Jap- Japanese league team Hokkaido. Kristen Teixeira helps Tim Parker score there. Parker actually had two. And Kai Kamara scored in this one as well, as did Bernie Abini. 
4-0, the Whitecaps win in front of, uh, well, I guess family and friends and some kid putting water down his shirt. There you go. Uh, the opening ceremonies for the uh, Winter Games is Friday in Pyeongchang, but they have already started playing some sports. Mixed curling, which is new. Canada lost its opening game today, 9-6 to Norway. Now, we should do well at these Olympics. We're expected to be a top-five nation in the standings, perhaps top-three. We have enough contenders. Of course, we always do better at the Winter Games and the Summer Games. In fact, there are only three winter sports we have never medaled at. Ski jumping, Nordic combined, and luge. We're much better going head first and feet first down the hill. Here's what we have done in all the other winter sports. All the medals we have won. Long track speed skating have produced the most at 35. Short track speed skating, which hasn't been as around as long as long track. 28 medals are you see figure skating. Hockey, I think we have the most gold in. Freestyle skiing, alpine skiing, that's the top six. The next six, curling is 110, snowboard, Bobsleigh at seven, skeleton at four, cross-country skiing and biathlon, three apiece. Centimeters gross at 355, Cypress 362, Sasquatch just a touch under 300 centimeters. Revelstoke a base of 268 with seven new, five new at Manning Park, a base of 188. Save at Powder King, five new, base 247, Mount Washington a base of 227. Big White's base 260, Silver Star 249, Sun Peaks 217, Apex 230, all those southern interior mountains, fresh snow up to 8 centimeters. Coming up on ET Canada, Florida Georgia Line on making new music and expanding their families, plus movie previews of Fifty Shades Freed and Peter Rabbit. That's coming up at 7, right after the news hour. Back to you, Anna Jay. All right, thanks for that, Paul. If you ever saw the 2002 film Minority Report, you probably remember the scene where Tom Cruise gestures in the air and images are moved around. Well, that's no longer just science fiction. Yeah, that's right. As Ted Chernecki reports, it's the latest frontier in human-machine interactions being developed by a pair of SFU grads. So clear. It used to be the stuff of scientific movies like Minority Report that first hit the big screen 16 years ago. Gesture control is finally moving from fantasy to fact, and two SFU students are leading the way with the creation of a wristband. The band works by detecting muscle and tendon movement on the wrist to tell what you're doing with your hand. Jedi-like. May the force be with you. Gesture control is being employed on all sorts of fronts, from drones. Just using my palm. I can move spark left, I can move it right. To video games, virtual reality, or controlling your infotainment system in newer cars. But this application could have far-reaching implications for the physically disabled and could even finally replace the mouse. We think we're sitting on a mouse moment. Just like the mouse uh, revolutionized the way we interact with the PC, gestures are going to revolutionize the way we interact with VR, AR, and other spatial computing methodologies. And when I make a fist, the object's in my hand. The SFU grads have been invited to fast-track their deployment of their product by an American-based technology mentorship company called Techstars. They are one of only 10 new companies selected. And we're playing in, in, in three big verticals, healthcare, uh, industrial automation, and consumer electronics. These devices are being evaluated by NASA um, for training astronauts. Uh, and by, uh, in, in hospitals for stroke rehabilitation. Here you go, fire. They might have killed the rabbit, but what they really want to kill is the mouse. That thing's been sitting on everyone's desk for close to four decades. It's time. Ted Chernecki, Global News.